Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to reintroduce to you now. Monique Attinger is a returning guest on our show. Be sure to check out her first appearances on our podcast, on episodes 318 and on episode 351 of Boundless Body Radio. Monique Attinger is a certified holistic nutritionist who is a world-renowned expert on the plant compound called oxalate. She is your partner in reaching your health goals through a focus on reducing your oxalate intake in combination with high-density nutrition and targeted nutritional supplements. Monique's clientele include many with complex dietary challenges, including the overlap of individual food sensitivities or allergies with other therapeutic diets. Monique's coaching helps her clients who think they have been eating extra healthy, some who have spent decades following careful eating plans, yet also find that they were not feeling well. Many chronic diseases have an inflammatory component, and oxalate can be an unrecognized driver, severely affecting people without them knowing the cause. You can find Monique on her website at www.loxcoach.com or on Twitter at loxcoach1. Monique Attinger, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you back to our show. Thanks for having me, Casey. I'm I looking forward to this. I love chatting with you. I absolutely love chatting with you. We've already done two of these, like we mentioned, and I'm excited for a third. It's just crazy. We keep uncovering more and more and more stuff to talk about. And even though I feel like the two hours that we spent together covering Oxalate, we're still like just scraping the surface, aren't we? It's a big, it's a big topic area. Like... I can't believe how my own knowledge of the field has changed over time in the 14 years since I first ran into the diet. And, and part of that is what's happening in the research. Part of that's what's happening um, in the support groups. Part of that is my own reading and working on connecting the dots and working with clients. And so I'm expecting to 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 be as fully fascinated by this topic in another 10 years as I am right now. And I'm currently, um, you know, looking at the idea that retirement may not be happening anytime soon because <laughs> I'm having too much fun. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, you know, being able to help people to get their health back, there's not much better than that. That's great. I mean, I, retirement is such a new concept. Nobody really retired like a hundred years ago. And the concept of, of what you described, like finding your passion, always learning, why would you ever retire? It's so much fun. Like you said, to learn about this stuff and then turn around and help people. Why would you want to retire from that? That sounds great. Yeah. And that's really my thought too, is that I think when people find their passion, yeah. Why would you want to retire? Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to just keep doing it forever? So I'm, I'm hoping to be helping to, you know, continue to contribute to what people know about this topic for uh, the foreseeable future. Well, that is fantastic. We're so grateful for you and all of your work into this. You did mention research and on some of our past interviews, you were kind of lamenting the fact that there wasn't a lot of research going on and that you had to go out and really dig for this stuff. To your knowledge, is more research being conducted currently as much as you would like to see? No, Mm. no. Um, the problem really is that research tends to be, you know, growing more in areas where we already recognize something. So if you're talking about, um, you know, in this case, a compound in our diets where the only interest is really coming out of the kidney stone world, and they're not looking so much in the rest of the body. Um, where I would like to see more research is being done is what's oxalate doing in the rest of the body. And, you know, I, I'm one of those people who's, who's textbook there. I've never had a kidney stone in my life. And yet, you know, taking down the level of oxalate in my diet was a game changer for my health. Yeah. So here we have this really pro-inflammatory compound. And yet we, because of where the research started, which is, you know, it makes a lot of sense. It started with the kidneys because kidney stones are really obvious. Right. And, and then it just sort of got, stuck there and yet if it's dry if oxalate's driving 
you know, inflammation in the kidneys, there's research about that. If, you know, if it can set off things like the inflammasome, there's research about that. If it is turning up in the rest of the body, when we see that the kidneys have failed, how come nobody's looking anywhere in between, you know, kidneys have failed or they're severely damaged. And then we start tracking oxalate turning up in the rest of the body, but nobody's looking before that. Nobody's looking to see, well, if it does this much damage later, could that be happening sooner? It's the the complete lack of curiosity and, and the difficulty with getting funding in research if you're not building on an existing area. So if somebody wants to, you know, go off into the boundaries and they're not anymore building on the same platform, then that can be a lot more difficult to do. And so, you know, awareness is growing. There is some research that's that's showing oxalate can be detrimental in other parts of the body. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming out now about microcalcifications in breast tissue and how those can be oxalate. And, um, you know, if you ever look at the research yourself, when you look at, um, you know, research studies, the titles and the abstracts are very carefully worded. Nobody wants to claim more than what they really can. And yet there's research which says oxalate induces breast cancer. That's about as, you know, clear and straightforward as you can get. And yet it's not really being discussed. Wow. And then there's the whole, what they're now calling crystal oxalate disease, which um, is a euphemism for how people can have oxalate crystals in their joints. Well, how can it be turning up in your joints if it's not in your kidneys? And like, again, why isn't anybody looking? So there's so many places where we could go wow. with this. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I think of research, I think of funding, and it's like, yeah, I don't I don't see the anti-spinach people <laughs> with millions of dollars in funding money to be able to fund some of this. So it's going to be tough. But then again, that's why we're so grateful for somebody like you who is taking whatever research has been done, but is also applying common sense and practicality and experience and really helping people, regardless of whether there's this amazing amount of clinical randomized trials or whatever, you're still able to recognize and help people with that. And with our conversation today, we're going to talk about some other compounds that I'm really curious about that I frankly don't know a lot about. So I'm really curious to have you help educate me and the listeners about them as well. And and I would argue that we are creating quite the masterclass on oxalate. Somebody could go back to the episodes that we mentioned, which were 318 and 351, and listen to those to kind of deep dive into oxalate and to get your personal story around oxalate and all of that stuff. But for the listener, if this is the first episode they're coming into, why don't we just do a very high level? What in the world is oxalate? Why is it a problem? Why do plants use it? Why does it cause problems in humans and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah. Okay. So we'll see if we can do the 10 minute and a little longer than an elevator speech kind Perfect. of thing. Perfect. <laughs> Escalator speech. Yeah, escalator speech when you're going up about five flights. Anyway, <laughs> if you if you're starting from square one, oxalate is a compound that's used by plants. It's used for very healthy and functional things in plants. So they use it to um, be able to bring minerals up from the soil into their structure. They use it for defense. So. Um, to prevent insects or other kinds of predation. And they can also be using it even to enhance photosynthesis. So if you've got crystals of oxalate, and that's one of the ways oxalate can be occurring, then those crystals inside a leaf may actually be able to allow the plant to get more oomph out of the sunlight that it's getting. So you can get different things that the plant's using oxalate for, but for a plant, it's actually let's say, um, metabolically useful in the sense that they're actually using it for basic functions. And also, um, it's not, it's not detrimental to them. This is a functional piece for a plant. It is not so for a human or, and even for many other animals. Um, 
So I, I stumbled um, not that long ago across an older piece of research that I hadn't looked at for a long time, which was showing that grazing animals with too much oxalate in their diet had higher than normal miscarriages. I was like, there's so much out here about how, and it's not, so it's not just humans. This was research that was done in the agricultural field in, in order to kind of alert farmers that if the forage for their animals was too high in oxalate, this could be why they might be having some difficulties. So we really have known about oxalate for a long time. Um, kidney stones are the main way that we've known that it negatively impacts health. We have had some of this other research that we're talking about. And the challenge is that for, um, for us, oxalate in our diet is not helpful. Oxalate is produced to some degree out of our own metabolism as an end product. So it's something that we have to excrete. And that's, we have other things in our bodies that are produced as end products that we have to excrete. That's not, that's not sort of a new thing. Um, So when we are taking it in, in a plant, it's already something we're going to have to get rid of right off the bat, because this is, this is not functional for us. We do not have pathways that use oxalate. And we can be taking it in in more than one form. So that form that helps with insect predation is usually what they call insoluble oxalate. That would be also crystals like the ones that they might have in their leaves in order to take advantage of sunlight. And that can do physical damage as a microcrystal. So the epidemic of leaky gut makes me sometimes think about oxalate because you're irritating the inside of that gut lining with these microcrystals. The best thing I would tell a client to do in this situation is to mentally chew a piece of spinach and, and like, like, you know, that mouthfeel, it's that kind of gritty mouthfeel. And that's what, you know, that crystal is, is that correct? That's absolutely true. And so spinach has got enough of it that we get the mouthfeel with it, right? Like there are other plants where there's still a fair amount of oxalate, but you're not going to get that mouthfeel. So I just don't want people to have the idea they're all always going to be able to detect it by how it feels on their teeth because they may not. So that's the crystalline form. And that's most of what's in spinach, although not all. Then there's the soluble form. So that's oxalate as an ion. And that unfortunately is easily absorbed through the gut. And once it's inside, I'm not going to say inside the body because the gut's inside the body. Once it's into the bloodstream, okay, once it's been absorbed from the gut, um, what it can really be doing is causing us problems because of some of the functions that plants use it for that are productive, like this tendency to bind with minerals. That's really helpful for a plant. If it's inside your bloodstream or tissues or interstitial fluid or whatever, it's come from the gut and now it's in us, um, then it can be chelating our minerals. And of course, then as the kidneys are doing their work, which is why kidney stones happen, as the kidneys are doing their work, if they're scraping this oxalate out of our bloodstream and it's bound to a mineral, then that's how you get like a calcium oxalate stone. That's a very insoluble compound and you know, easy enough to be created inside our bodies because calcium is one of the minerals that we need. Oxalate, though, can be binding to any other mineral, which is a double positive. Um, And the thing there is that a lot of our basic important minerals are a double positive. And so that could be iron or copper or zinc or magnesium or just a host of them, right? And so we can end up mineral depleted at a time in our history where it appears our food is already mineral depleted. So it's a, it's a bad combination. And if that soluble oxalate gets into the tissues, which it can, then the tissues can be impacted. So 
The problem there is that different cell transporters are capable of moving oxalate because keep in mind, oxalate's a metabolic end product. So tissues need to be able to get rid of it, right? So in some cases, we have chloride transporters, which may move oxalate. We can have sulfate transporters, which may move oxalate. We can have bicarbonate transporters that may move oxalate. So in all these cases, the cell transporter can almost essentially end up working the wrong way. So cell transporter goes out into the interstitial fluid. I'm after a sulfate molecule, but there's lots of oxalate around, but this end on this transporter is able to pick that up. So almost like a case of mistaken identity, you know, it picks that up, pulls it into the cell. But then if what the cell needed was chloride or bicarbonate or sulfate, it can't run the process it was trying to do. It's almost like you go into a store with Monopoly money. I think I used this analogy last time. Nobody's going to sell you anything from Monopoly money. You are underfunded or you're not funded. You're not going to be able to do what you were trying to do. So that's kind of what ha can happen down at the tissue level. You're you're underfunded or not funded for what you need to do. Mm. And so what we can see is processes that depend on chloride, bicarbonate, sulfate may be compromised. Bandwidth comes down. And so there can be all kinds of things downstream of that. So the challenge here is that it's doing multiple things. It can be moved in multiple areas and, and we're not tracking it. We're not looking for it. Yeah. Wow. And so people who have inflammation that they're not able to get under control because oxalate's pro-inflammatory or who have function constrained for reasons which don't really make sense, like there's not an obvious trigger or for people who don't feel well, but their tests look all okay or they're eating extra healthy and they're getting sicker. This could be the thing that right now we really don't look for. And so, you know, I think the risk is there that it's doing things or we wouldn't be having this research that's coming out, you know, talking microcrystals, talking joints, talking cancer, talking these other things. And of course, we know that a lot of diseases are inflammatory. And so, you know, that's that underlying inflammatory piece with oxalate is sort of a generic bad, you know, it's just, it's just exacerbating potentially other things that are already going on. So, yeah. so you get this perfect storm of things that are kind of swirling around. Wow. That's so interesting. Okay. I got a question just today about a good friend and former coworker of mine. She was a personal trainer. So she's been doing the right things for all the years. Same that I did 10 right. years ago. I was doing all the right things. So into the blender went the spinach and the almond milk and the beets and did that every right. single morning for years because that's what you do. So right. this person was talking about her, her bones, her, her, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, basically. Um, and she's more aware of this kind of stuff now, and she's been working to get some of that stuff out of her diet, but, but she's experiencing more of those symptoms. Now my head went directly to oxalate as probably a primary cause, even though it maybe has been years since that person has eaten high oxalate foods. Is, is that correct to say or to think that that is probably the primary cause? Are there other plant chemicals? Are there other things going on there? Or is oxalate pretty much the primary problem when it comes to bones, bone issues, joint, joint pain, that kind of thing? I have a clear bias on this because I've encountered too many cases um, in my client base of people who've got things like this, and it turns out to be oxalate. But no, it's not the only bad guy out there. And the reason, though, that I would be um, looking at oxalate is that let's say um, you went through a time period in your 20s where you were a vegan. But at some point, you started to feel not so good on vegan and you changed your diet. So then it wasn't as high in oxalate anymore. But the problem is that oxalate 
can bioaccumulate. There's research to indicate this. Um, there was a, a great piece of research that looked at thyroid glands and researchers discovered over time with reviewing um, samples of these thyroid glands that they could tell how old somebody was by how many oxalate crystals were in the thyroid gland. And so that's a pretty astonishing thing because we don't think about the thyroid gland as being a location for oxalate vulnerability. Again, we just look at kidneys. And these were not people where it was all about oxalate that they were looking at these thyroid glands either. So um, I think the problem with bioaccumulation is it then may be taking time for us to get rid of it. And unless our oxalate's dropping low enough so that bioaccumulation really stops so that we're starting to flush it out. We're not just replacing new stuff as we're moving things out. Um, it can take quite a long time for you to get oxalate out if you're just moving some, adding other, moving some, adding other. And in the grand scheme of things, you may lose some oxalate really quickly because it's kind of surface level. Let's let's look at something like, um, you know, blood cells where you're turning those over constantly. So if you had a lot of oxalate in your bloodstream, you're going to get rid of that quickly because it's sort of surface level. But bones remodel slowly. Bones, they, they assume, take about seven years to remodel. Well, you could be well down the way from where your original oxalate intake was happening and be dealing with bone issues because it's just going to take longer for those tissues to be, um, you know, refreshed, if you will, right? If you want to use another word. so. Yeah, that's part of the challenge because they, I've actually seen in some research which looks at oxalosis. So that's when the body is essentially got so much oxalate in it that you're seeing it everywhere. And you can actually see oxalate crystals in the bone matrix. So it's not like, it's not like somehow there's a get out of jail free card for some kinds of tissues in the body. And gosh, we don't know enough. We just know the beginnings of some of this. And so more than give definitive answers, I invite people to think about it and consider what could be going on, especially if we know, and this part we do know, um, that there are cell transporters that move chloride, that's an electrolyte, that move bicarbonate. Lots of tissues in the body used bicarbonate. Your pancreas uses bicarbonate um, or sulfate. Lots of tissues in the body use sulfate. Your liver uses sulfate. It's really important there. Like we just need to kind of be willing to have some curiosity here about what could be happening if oxalate's being moved into all these kinds of tissues. And then what's the implications for getting it out? Because I'll give you a great example. I tried to become a vegetarian more than once in my 20s. And both times when I did it, I actually ended up feeling worse when I was doing it, which is what drove me away from, from becoming a vegetarian. But, you know, it took a lot longer to end up being really sick. So I was a much healthier overall individual at 28 or 29 than I was at 48 when I when I learned about oxalate and so the problem here is also that when the oxalate goes in you may be in a very different health status than when it when you're trying to get it out and at that point your body may be compromised in ways that it wasn't when it went in so it may look innocuous on the way out, but it might just be kicking your butt. Or, I mean, it might be innocuous on the way in, but it might be kicking your butt on the way out, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's so many bits and pieces to this. And yeah, it it's it's definitely an area where there's lots of questions to be asked and lots of research that could be done. So for the listener who's sitting here thinking like I am, like I, I, I did it. I did all this stuff I was supposed to do. You know, I, I, I followed everybody's advice and I did it. And now all of this stuff might be 
coming out of my body at some point and causing problems on the way out, even though I'm eating a carnivore diet now, I have an essentially zero oxalate diet. Is right. there hope for people like that who, who you know, feel like they followed the instructions years ago and now they're staring down the barrel of, of dumping oxalate, which is going to be really unpleasant. Is there any hope? I think there's absolutely hope because at 48, I thought I'd die before my kids grew up and I'm 62 now and have no plans to retire. So uh, I don't think that I had some amazingly different, you know, physical constitution that allowed me to somehow magically be able to, to handle this. And it wasn't an overnight process. It did take time. And there were some parts of it that were miserable. So getting guidance along the way is going to be helpful. Um, recognizing that when oxalates mobilized, you may not have done anything wrong. So one of the things that happens here, and if we're going to talk about histamine, this kind of ties in. One of the okay. things that happens here is people treat oxalate a little like an allergy. And so they think, well, if I'm avoiding it, I shouldn't have any problem. But that whole phenomena of when it went in, I may be in very different health status when it's going out, is going to be one of the things that we have to deal with. And the other is that oxalate is doing multiple things, which may be setting us up for what looks like allergy. So because oxalate drives the inflammasome, because it sets off some of the inflammation pathways, it tends to get the immune system involved. Why? Well, the immune system's job is inflammation and injury, right? So if I'm starting to have inflammatory things that are being kicked off by oxalate, my immune system's gonna be, oh, I have to pay attention to that, right? Over time, what it appears to be doing, and there's different mast cell folks who kind of agree with me on this. And again, the research isn't a straight line, but I think it's starting to develop where what we're doing is irritating those mast cells. We're revving them up with this substance, both between the inflammation and maybe even what what it's doing to mast cells directly. Because if we can kick off the inflammasome, a mast cell has an inflammasome too. So, mm, so there's things that can be happening. And what I see in clients is that once they start to move oxalate out, sometimes the immune system can get annoyed enough that you do start to have symptoms that look like immune system symptoms. So you can get rashes. My daughter had rashes. You can get um, asthma. My son got asthma. Uh, you know, you can have these things. And there's actually some really interesting uh, information on certain cell transporters to show why it might be certain uh, systems in the body that get this. So there's, there's certain cell transporters um, the SLC26A family of cell transporters. I have memorized that because otherwise it looks like alphabet soup to me. <laughs> um, but that family of cell transporters um, can be expressed in different parts of the body. And depending upon, you know, which variations you might have on the genetics behind these cell transporters, you might be moving oxalate mostly in the lungs. You might be moving oxalate out through the skin. You might be like, so there's lots of places where these transporters make a difference. And, but the interesting thing was, even though both kids ex, of my kids expressed it differently, they looked a bit like they were having an allergic reaction, right? My daughter looked like she had hives potentially my son wheezing and i so what can can be a challenge here is that you might temporarily have to manage histamine sources in your diet or triggers to the immune system because oxalates kind of set you up to be overreactive and that's where you can get this oxalate histamine connection 
So I have an awful lot of clients who end up having to be on a low histamine diet, not necessarily forever, but in some cases they need it because we need to reduce some of the pressure on their immune system so that when they're moving oxalate out, they're not ending up with more intense symptoms because of the immune system component and mast cells releasing histamine because, you know, oxalates got them uh, kind of wound up and then they, and then they release their contents and make, make problems for us. Wow. Right. Um, so, so there's this really interesting kind of issue where some of my clients have been doing a low histamine diet for years and then it stops working. Mm. And it turns out when they talk to me, I look at their diet and they've got a lot of high oxalate foods in their diet. And then, you know, they'll say to me, well, I've eaten those all my life. It's like, <laughs> yes. But the problem is you've gotten to the point where you've hit a critical threshold and your body's going, I'm not having fun anymore. Yeah. And, you know, maybe oxalate was under the surface of your histamine problem all along. Right. And I can get the opposite thing going on. Somebody's come to me because they're pretty clear about the oxalate component. And then they start doing work and lowering oxalate. And then they get a big mobilization of oxalate from someplace where it's stored. Right. Again, we've got these cell transporters all over the body. We don't know enough about where it might be coming from, but it tends to leave the body in these waves. So you're not necessarily having it leave in a steady stream. So all of a sudden a wave leaves. And, and they're saying, I'm doing everything right. And I've got all these problems. It's like, oh, you're going to have to take your histamine down because they've developed a rash or they, you know, they're blowing their nose all the time or they're, you know, they're wheezing. And so this is an area where I can't say for sure one causes the other or whatever, but there looks to be, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, overlap here where one of these things may actually be both of these things. And, you know, nowadays, if somebody wanted to go on just a low histamine diet and they were talking to me, I'd say on principle, take those high oxalate foods out of your diet because I don't see any benefit here. We're just putting your body under more pressure. If you've got high oxalate food and you're trying to do a low histamine diet, the likelihood that they may have both. I just figure it's, you know, it's not worth kind of gambling there. Interesting. Okay. I'm so glad we're talking about histamine because I know shockingly little about histamine. I know there's antihistamines that you can take like Benadryl and I know they make you drowsy. So antihistamine must mean they're bad. So we shouldn't have them, which you told us last time they're actually not bad guys. I knew there was an a, a low histamine diet, I have no idea what's included on the diet or not. So can you educate me for sure? And, and the listeners who might only know histamine and Benadryl, and that's about all they know about it. And all they know. Yeah. So, so histamines are something our body uses all the time. They are not bad guys. They are things we use for regular common functions. Great example is your sleep cycle. About four o'clock in the morning, your brain releases histamine. Why? Keep you awake. Stays up there for the day if all goes well. Drops at night so you can sleep. Stays down at night. If, you're, if your sleep is working properly, your histamine is doing this up and down in the brain. We also use histamine for digestion. So when you start eating... One of the things that are going to be released as part of the digestion process is histamine. And so histamine is not a bad guy. Overdoing histamine is the problem. So histamine in and of itself, that's not the, the, the target, if you will. The, the target is being able to use histamine in a nuanced way where it's going up and resolving and going up and resolving. That's how it's supposed to work. And so when somebody starts to realize uh, that they're not handling histamine well, they may have very typical allergic symptoms. 
rashes, wheezing, eye watering, the kinds of things, or heartburn, because that's that's often a gut histamine issue. And we can get antihistamine for that. So let me just give a little context on what an antihistamine is. It doesn't really actually go and break down a histamine molecule least not generally speaking. So the kinds that you can get at the at, at your regular drugstore, um, you know, Claritin and Benadryl and blah, 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 uh, Pepsidase, which is the gut one, those are um, antihistamines in the sense that they cover the histamine receptor. So they keep the histamine in the blood from doing what it what it would do normally and so it kind of stops how stimulating histamine might be left to its own devices, right? And, and that's one of the reasons why actually when you have a bad reaction, like somebody who's got bad allergies, um, you know, the exposure to their allergens, say they're allergic to cats and they go to their friend's house and there's a cat, right? Ideally, they take the antihistamine before they get there. So the receptors are covered before they get exposed to their allergen. But let's say you get exposed to your allergen accidentally. You might have to take antihistamines for two, three, four days because the histamine has to work its way out of your system because you're just covering the receptors. So then you stop taking the antihistamine and ta-da, your symptoms come back, right? So um it's a tool that people can use if they're having these kinds of histamine symptoms. And of course, they are available over the counter so people can make some of their own decisions about them. Uh, interestingly enough, Benadryl, which is, they call it a first generation antihistamine, it affects histamine in the brain. That's why Benadryl makes you drowsy. It wow. takes histamine down in the brain. So it's been remarketed as a sleep aid, which, you know, it's, it will help with sleep for people if what their problem with sleep is really a problem with histamine in the brain. So there's, there's, there's interesting things that um, we've kind of stumbled over in this whole business of how do we control allergy symptoms. And then for those who may have this oxalate plus histamine. Sometimes, you know, they have been managing themselves with something like antihistamines because that helps. Um, but it doesn't get a lowered histamine in the body. So it's it's not exactly like the problem of hint of insulin, but it has some similarities in the sense that maybe your histamine's running too high because your mast cells are too irritated because oxalate's been beating them up. And so they've been releasing more histamine than they should, right? So the, the challenge then is how do we figure out who's the bad guy? And I'd say, this is a really tough one because you've got two of them swirling together. They're cooperating, right? Wow. You're being tag teamed. Yeah. <laughs> That's so and 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 so you need like you need kind of some uh, uh, an approach where maybe you're managing both those things for a time, taking down the histamine in your food, taking down the oxalate in your food, and then you know hanging in there while oxalate gets mobilized out of your system because that you don't have any control over. Interesting. So last time we went over all of the foods that are very high in oxalate. So I think we've got a good idea of the foods that we should eliminate to get rid of oxalate. What's the difference between high histamine foods? What foods are those? Well, you know, there's a lot of research still being done on this. So I I wish I had a definitive list. I mean, I think a lot of these things that we're discovering about foods you know, testing and research is still ongoing. And so like a single list that works like a calorie list is not really available. We don't have like an average, right? But generally speaking, uh, aged meat will have a higher histamine. And that's not because the meat's going bad. That's because that's a normal process the meat, when it's exposed to air and oxidizes, it tends to create histamine. There's no taste to it. There's no smell to it. So it's not about the meat going bad. It's just the aging process 
encourages this conversion in the meat. So for a lot of people who need to look at histamine, they'll need to look at buying as fresh as possible with any kind of animal product. And on the other side of that, once you've cooked meat, you will still get this process where histamine is being generated. And so I think of it a bit like a histamine clock. And if you're going to slow that down, freezing is your best way to do it. Mm. So if I buy fresh, I cook as quickly as possible, or I buy fresh and freeze as quickly as possible, then when I'm cooking, I'm going to freeze again after the cooking process as quickly as possible. All you're trying to do is shut off that clock as much as you can Interesting. so that you're not developing more of it. Intriguingly enough, some people do very um, poorly with plant histamine, plant-based histamine, and do okay with meat-based histamine. So somebody like me, who's also dealt with the histamine aspect here, um, I don't really have to worry too much about meat that's aged or anything like that. I'm fine. Um, and I do have other clients where they have the same thing. So there's this odd thing with histamine that it may depend on the source for anybody's particular situation. So some people can't handle plant-based histamine. Some people can't handle meat-based histamine. And some people have to manage both. Um, the more unwell you are, the more likely you're in the I have to manage both category. Um, and plants that have high histamine. So... The biggest offenders here, and again, we're going to hit ones where people are not going to like me. <laughs> so chocolate's high histamine. See ya, see ya listeners, for the for the third time that we've talked together, just lost them all. I'm, I apologize. I'm sorry. Um, tomatoes are high histamine. Not so much the histamine in the tomato itself, but it seems to act as a histamine liberator, which is another category in foods um i don't think anybody will cry too much that spinach is high histamine i think they'll be Drats. fine with that darn Drats. <laughs> um so it's not a perfect overlap with oxalate by any stretch of the imagination so once you have to overlap a um you know kind of a low to medium oxalate food list with a low to medium histamine food list you are getting a smaller list of foods but um, I'm relentless in the let's exploit what's available as much as possible. Um, and, you know, when it comes to uh, like patterns in histamine, it's this aging, fermenting, those kinds of things tend to naturally be higher in histamine. So, you know, a fermented kimchi, which might normally be fine because it's cabbage, I would avoid it if you've got a significant um, histamine issue. But like many things, it's a threshold phenomenon yeah. too. So the, the highest histamine things, you know, maybe the only things that you need to take out of your diet in order to like take some pressure off your system. but. Um, but yeah, they, they, it tends to be a lot of the same kinds of um, challenges with a threshold and data and those kinds of things. But tomatoes, chocolate, um, fermented things, um, and like there are some sort of funny selections of things that end up higher histamine. Um, kale's higher histamine. Again, I don't think anybody's going to cry over that. <laughs> nope, absolutely not. <laughs> um, but some of the berries are higher histamine. That's a sad one for a lot of people. Like, mm. especially if you're eating low carb, strawberries are a little higher histamine. So you might want to stay to your blueberries, um, in, and maybe raspberries and like some berries are really high in oxalate. So it starts to reduce some of your options there. Um, citrus tends to be a histamine trigger. So some people will find that they need to go away from uh, too much citrus, or maybe they need to avoid it completely. Some people are so sensitive, it can be an avoid completely thing. Um, and some people may find that as a, 
as a temporary tool, though, that it really helps them to just manage some of this histamine and tend towards lower histamine options. And then like later, they may be able to open up their diet again so that it's just low oxalate. Honestly, at this point in my life, there's so many options that we've had tested that are lower oxalate. I don't even think twice about some of the the difficulties, Um, like chocolate. But, you know, I'm starting to, I've learned about some of the alternatives. There's something on the market which is sometimes hard to get, but I'm, I think I found a supplier again called Maya nut powder, M-A-Y-A nut. And it's not a full blown chocolate, but it gives you this nice chocolate, almost cappuccino kind of flavor. And um, it's okay from the histamine standpoint. So, you know, it, some of it is the nuances would take more time, but broad strokes, you know, what really kills people are the tomatoes because tomato sauces and tomatoes and all kinds of things, strawberries, chocolate, you know, those are the ones that really, um, you know, make people unhappy with having to reduce histamine. Yeah. Gotcha. Wow. Well, thank you for all of that. Is there anything we need to do anything else we need to know about histamine before we move on to one more compound I want to ask you about? sort of the broad strokes. Okay. And I mean, we could absolutely come back and do some more in depth if people wanted to know more there. Um, because it is honestly, uh, among my clients, it's probably the biggest overlap. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I did want to ask you about salicylate. Uh, first of all, did I say that correctly? You're, you did. You're, you're good oh, you with all the big believe- words. <laughs> You would not believe the pronunciation. Some people, most people just call them sals because they see all those syllables and they just that sounds, you know, the, their tongue stops yeah, working. Exactly. That through. sounds a lot better to me. You're good with the big words, way better than I am with that. Tell us about salicylate. What is this compound? Salicylate is um, another plant compound. It's probably most frequent in fruit. So this is a bit of a thing for people. It's it, and it's more limiting in your options, I think, overall than histamine. Although if your issue is salicylate, you're not going to have the problem with meats and aged meats and those kinds of cooking procedures that you might have to follow from a histamine standpoint. Um, it's really, again, common among my oxalate clients to have at least some level of salicylate issue and that's because salicylate depends on liver detox and if your liver is trying to pull in sulfate and not getting enough because of oxalate then your liver detox bandwidth comes down and 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 this can be an issue in terms of your ability to clear salicylate so um Again, people may start out doing a a low salicylate diet, think they've nailed it, and then unfortunately, they stumble over the fact that there are foods left in their diet that are high in oxalate, and so the diet gets less and less workable because they find their tolerance gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and then perhaps even they're at the lowest salicylate they can take in, and they're still feeling lousy. If that's what somebody's experiencing, I'm I'm 100% going to say, I bet you there's oxalate under there. Wow. So, um, so the real thing here is the way that oxalate and sulfate in the liver can be affecting our ability to then detox salicylate. If we can't detox it and get it out and it's, accumulating in the bloodstream because it's sort of waiting to be flushed out, then that's where people can start to have some difficulty. And there's unfortunately overlap between salicylate and histamine in terms of the kinds of symptoms you can get. But um, one of the things that people see with salicylate intolerance is tinnitus or tinnitus and um that kind of ringing in the ear if you're getting it after eating i would be looking at 
uh, salicylate as an issue. Wow. You hear that all the time from vegans and vegetarians. And, and this is actually um, like a really distinctive symptom for salicylate. So, you know, it's, I think it's a big issue that's, that's hovering out there and that people don't realize they they slowly develop, you know, tinnitus or tinnitus over time. And um, they might notice it's worse after a meal, but they don't really connect it somehow. Um, you can also get with salicylate, especially with kids, you get something that people refer to as the sillies, where the kids just laughing, almost a little punch drunk, and that can be salicylate. And so it's, you know, it's not something where um, you're you're necessarily getting allergy symptoms, although you can. That's where the overlap happens. You can get rashes with salicylate. You can get some of these other things that look like histamine. But um, if you have if you have tinnitus or you have a kid with the sillies, I would be really suspicious about salicylate because wow. it has it has more nervous system impacts or it looks like it does. Mm. Wow. And you mentioned these come from fruits primarily, which is well, mostly. I mean, fruit is the is the type of food in your diet that's going to take the biggest hit if salicylate is your problem. Gotcha. Um, it can occur in, you know, all sorts of other food groups. It's not an animal-based issue. Again, it's just a plant-based issue. And uh, you can lose a fair number of your vegetables as well with salicylate. So it it's it's really tough on people in terms of variety if they have a salicylate issue. Yeah. Um, so... That one, the food list is is quite more restrictive. And, and unfortunately, here's where those guys start to spin around together. The research shows that salicylate's a mast cell um, like destabilizer. So it impacts mast cells as well. So you can end up with like a merry-go-round between histamine, salicylate, and oxalate, where you just keep destabilizing mast cells. And, and so you can have a salicylate problem and then have to deal with histamine because of what you're doing to the mast cells. So, you know, I do get clients who have then what's generally speaking, probably my one of my shorter food lists, not the shortest, but one of the shorter ones where you're trying to cut away histamine, you're trying to cut away salicylate and you're trying to handle oxalate. And the good news story there is once people have been on a low ox diet for a while, I do find that the majority of people that I've seen at this point um, are able to open up their dietary aspects. And, you know, not every client stays with me long enough until I see. I have to remember to go back and follow up with people and go, are we good now? Is yeah. everything good now? Because yeah. I need to know. But I, um, one of my clients recently who had some pretty serious salicylate issues was able to come completely away from restricting salicylate and just kept their the family's oxalate in this sort of low to medium range and everything was good so it's nice to have somebody that i you know i followed long enough to be able to see that whole process yeah but certainly in my own case i can tolerate things that i couldn't before because once the oxalate's out then you've got less of this irritation and inflammation and you know compromised detox and all these things which are are impacting what you're able to to handle because Every food as it comes in, you have to be able to handle everything you want to do with it right through disposition. Yeah. Right. So you have to be able to excrete at the end or, you know, detox at the end, whatever you have to do, you have to be able to get the waste product out. Right. right? And, you know, unfortunately, oxalate's impacting that too. It's our ability to get waste product out. So it's not just the irritation to the mast cells and that kind of, I'm going to say more immediate function. It's this, what happens um, in the whole life cycle of what you're doing with food. Right. 
And again, that's what makes it so nuanced and vexing and all of this. And, and, and through this conversation, I just keep thinking like what an amazing tool to have using a carnivore style diet, not forever, but as a tool, you can use a carnivore style diet as a tool. I don't think you have to be a hundred percent, you know, strict with it. You, you can include other things as long as you know what you're doing, but at least having that as the base, not only to prevent this stuff, but also to recover, then to bring things in and see how you feel. Am I, am I, Am I in the ballpark there by saying that that is an amazing tool that people can use and somebody like me who really enjoys a carnivore diet can just stay on it for a really long time as long as I'm feeling great and have really good energy, that that's okay. Yeah, I think here's what I'd say is a little piece of nuance there. I am mostly carnivore as well. So I would call myself kind of carnivore adjacent. Do I enjoy the odd thing? Yes. And today I had tiger nuts (laughs) i've never heard of those yeah this is this is they're not really a nut and um and they're they're actually really high in fiber so not for somebody who's got can't handle fiber if they're not made Um, from nuts are they made from tigers they're made no not from tigers (laughs) yeah that's true it's a carnivore Oh, we don't even want to go there, do we? Because it's talking. No, no. Exactly. Um, these are a tuber. <laughs> so cool. it's like a potato. They grow under the ground. Anyway. Um, so can you have a little bit of something like that and be okay? Sure. Those are lower oxalate. I'm not eating a ton of them. Um, I do find sometimes a little bit of fiber is good for me. It helps with appetite regulation occasionally when I'm a little bit, you know, deregulated because I didn't sleep well or whatever. Um but staying mostly carnivore has been great for me. And in fact, I just went to do a bit of a personal health reset, joined a local fitness club, got a trainer, you know. Uh. Anyway, one of the things that they did was an electrical impedance scale. And this is a long way around of saying by being mostly carnivore, I've been able to maintain like really good muscle mass. And that's, I think a real advantage of the diet. So I'm a woman in my sixties. I was, I'm pretty deconditioned at the moment other than walking my dog, which is, and I, I really want to have more strength, more flexibility. Um, and you see these older people who start to hoop over and I want posture. So I like, I've got some really clear goals and I, because of what the work I do, I sit too much. So I wanted something that was going to really just, you know, get me in, in fighting shape again. I used to do karate. I'd like to, I'd like to be in really good shape again. So, um, the interesting thing there though, is that even though I was pretty deconditioned, uh, for my age, uh, and gender category, I, I am like, at the high end of normal, low end of high muscle mass. Fantastic. So I think there's things with carnivore which do good stuff for us. So I know I don't want to dissuade anybody from carnivore or carnivore adjacent or a keto carnivore kind of approach. But what I will say is this, having followed lots of carnivores, having read a lot of the information, when carnivores talk about adaptation, I think they're talking about oxalate dumping. Interesting. And the reason for that is that sometimes people feel wickedly awful, really big symptoms. They're posting with a level of anxiousness to some of these groups and people tell them just eat more meat. What I would say is if you want to use carnivore as a tool, do this smart. Don't come from a vegan diet, nosedive into carnivore, and then set your body into, um, you know, just a, a terrible kind of space because all of a sudden the body starts to mobilize a lot of oxalate. We haven't eased into this. Our gut microbe aren't ready for what's being thrown at them. The microbiome's kind of trying to adjust to what we've done. Like we can really be in a heck of a of a bad spot. And I unfortunately have a number of clients who tried carnivore before they got to me. And so I couldn't ease them in bringing their oxalate down slowly, watching for histamine problems, like catching the stuff before they get there. Right. So 
So what I'd say is carnivore is a great tool. Carnivore is even a great, you know, periodic reset. Like I had been low oxalate for a decade before the first time I ever tiptoed into carnivore was a great thing for me, but I basically didn't have a lot of oxalate load to get rid of either. Um, so we can use it as a tool. We just need to use it in a smart way. Love that. And not necessarily nosedive into the lowest oxalate diet you can be on. Because once they do that and the body gets the signal that there's not a lot of oxalate in the gut, um, those cell transporters can be doing all kinds of things and they can be moving it too fast. And if and it is toxic and our bandwidth to handle the work that we have to do to deal with that oxalate as it, as it's leaving may not be sufficient. So we need to respect the body's capacity and its resilience. The sicker you are, the less likely you should just nose drive. That is so well explained. This is is a tricky, all of this has been really tricky to navigate because again, there's so much nuance. It is going to be different for everybody. There's going to be different reactions and different symptoms. But this hour, again, has just completely flown by. I love that we can talk about oxalate for hours and hours and learn something from you every single time. It's really amazing. And it, I, yeah, I just, I think there's so much to go back and learn in this episode and especially in conjunction with the other two. I think this is a lot of really amazing information information that people can use and and use to make decisions, drive decisions about how they want to live, but understanding that, yeah, you don't want to make those really drastic changes. You need to move slowly. And if somebody can't figure this out on their own, which is going to be very difficult for them anyway, they need to hire an expert like you. So I love your work. I love your research. Tell our listeners one more time where they can go to find you and connect with you and your work. Well, they can find me on Twitter, LowoxCoach1. Most places I'm just LowoxCoach. Um, and they can also find me with three other wonderful women who are also uh, Oxlate experts at Wizards of Ox, Low Oxlate Experts on YouTube. Wizards they of Ox. Can. I see what you did there. Wizards of Ox. That's good. Wizards of Ox. That's oh, good. we're good. <laughs> anyway, um, and there's lots of good learning there. Like we do um, a live Zoom every week and then post those up on that channel. And so um, some of the episodes are long because they are an hour or maybe an hour and a bit. But if people really want to be able to dig in more, we are we are talking oxalate all the time um there's also some support groups so there is the wonderful susan owens who started the original support groups and that's how i got so smart so we've got the trying low oxalates with an s support groups we have two locations for those groups. One's a Facebook group. One is a Groups IO group. I am not very often on Groups IO. That would be my friend and colleague Carla Wiersma who runs that group. But I am on the Facebook group, and so you know, if people are looking for a place for you know where they'll get some good information, um, and you know the price point is good. Those YouTube and and the support groups are great. I have a Patreon group, again, Low Ox Coach. And what I like about that group is that it's, you know, it's it's a lovely, has a lovely feel to it. I'm I'm lucky there's some wonderful people on there. And it's really going to give you a variety of things. You know, examples of meals. I take pictures of the stuff that we eat because hey, everybody does that. But anyway, um, and I, you know, tips and tricks, recipe hacks. If somebody finds a recipe and says, hey, Monique, what would I do with this to make it better? I will do posts like that. I talk about supplements that are helpful on your journey. Um you know, depending what level you come in at, there's menus um, there, like full menu plans with all the recipes. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel that's just my channel. So you can find some stuff there as well. And actually, I think 
I think one of our last interviews is up there now. So great. Oh, that's awesome. They can get the video. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. That's awesome. There's so many different resources and ways that that you can help people and people can be helped at all of the different price points, whether somebody needs private professional one-on-one coaching or whether they just want to ask a question and feel supported. I love that you offer all of that. Monique Attinger, I know this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about some of these plant toxins, but thank you so very much for taking the time to research this. And thank you for taking the time to come back on our show today. We really super appreciate you. Wonderful to be here, Casey. It's, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to help people learn about this and then at least they can make a decision about whether or not it makes sense for them or not. That's right. It's very, very empowering in that way. And again, we're so grateful for you and thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to and supporting Boundless Body Radio. It has been such a joy to go on this journey now that it's been two years of doing these episodes and all the amazing conversations that we've had with thought leaders and to be able to share this message around the world with literally hundreds of thousands of people has been so amazing. If you haven't already, please go over to Apple, leave us a rating and review as it's the best way for the show to continue to grow and touch more lives of people out there. I am so excited to announce that we are launching the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is something that I have been working really hard at for a very long time and something I am very proud of. Now that we have done over 300 episodes, our content can be a little bit overwhelming if you really want to learn about one particular topic and really zero in on that topic. So that is exactly what I have done. I have gone through all of our episodes, taken the very best clips all about one particular topic and put them into long form very informative and concise episodes called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. That can be found on our brand new Patreon page, which I'm really excited to announce as we have all kinds of different offers there and different tiers. We're including early releases of our show, Boundless Body Radio. We typically keep about 15 to 20 episodes scheduled at any given time. So we have options there where you can have early access to those. We are also offering group and one-on-one coaching and also access to these premium podcast episodes, the Balanced Body Radio Premium Podcast. We have three that are launching right now, and I will be making a new one every other week. And we believe that we are providing these for a very, very high value. So please check us out on Patreon, check the link in the notes to be able to get there. And thank you as always for listening to Boundless Body Radio.